in Under the Skin tonight, we present Jerry Mufuking in conversation with Dennis Goldberg, with dramatic effects added by Mbabi Machiba and Julia N. Malone. That was 1943. We were right in the middle of World War II and the Western Allies and the Soviet Union were fighting against Nazi Germany with its belief in a superior race, its determination to conquer the world. There were concentration camps, people were being murdered and yes, there was the Holocaust Ten years old, I knew about this, because at the age of six, I was reading the newspaper headlines, sitting on my father's lap. Oh, Dennis, the world's gone mad. Why, Dad? Read the newspaper to me. And so I knew about the concentration camps, I knew about the murder of Jews, but I knew about the murder of people who were not Jews. And somehow the world seems to forget that six million Jews were murdered, that's true, the Holocaust took place. But something like probably 10 million or more civilians who were not Jews were murdered. Professors, school teachers, intellectuals of all kinds, socialists, communists, trade union leaders, but also physically disabled people, what we call gypsies, Sinti and Roma people, Uh, homosexuals and lesbians were sent to death camps. And we seem to forget there's no memorial to them like there is to the Holocaust. That's leaping ahead. But I was aware of this as a little boy. All of us are working hand in hand. We're working to preserve this wondrous land. But there is something more we all My parents were communists. My father had six years at school in England. He was a sailor. He became a sailor during World War I because he didn't want to fight for the imperialists. So he became a sailor in the merchant marine. I once said to him when I was a bit older, Dad, but you were carrying munitions for the war. Yes, I know. You had to make choices, Dennis. He said, yes, he knows, but you have to make choices. I didn't want to go to prison. He wasn't going to go to prison. But in his trade union, he was a shop steward. He organised workers. He took them out on strike. He'd lived in Australia. He'd lived with working people in Australia. He was a working man, and my mother. My mother worked in a clothing factory. All her life she had a bad back from crouching over the machine in a badly lit factory. And machines weren't modern machines like today. They were heavy to use. So this is where I grew up. And I want to tell you, 
Workers would go on strike in Cape Town. Shopkeepers, coloured, white, African, workers of any kind. Go on. My parents were there feeding them, taking them coffee, taking them sandwiches, and I was with them as a little boy. There you go, darling. That's better. Nice egg sandwich for you. There you go. There. Uh, the shopkeepers, the shop assistants used to give special treats to my mother because she helped them on the picket line. She was a favoured customer, not because we were nice people or, or, you know, sort of somehow bribed them, but just because we were there. And so I grew up knowing about justice and injustice. And you see, everybody says, why, Dennis, as a white, did you get involved in fighting for black people? Both my parents, had they been school teachers, would have been outstanding because they would introduce ideas and leave me to think about them. They didn't lecture me, they didn't tell me, oh, you've got to believe this, you've got to believe that. People were in our house, members of the ANC, members of the Communist Party, professors, working people in their boots and professors in their suits. I met them all. What I was taught and what my parents demanded was you treat people with respect. Dennis, always remember, you treat people with respect. My mother said to me... If you start a task, you must finish it. Don't leave it unfinished. If you start a task, you must finish it. You don't leave it unfinished. And if a task is worth doing... And if a task is worth doing, then, then you, you must, must do, it, do properly. it properly. You must show respect. And thirdly, you must show respect for all people. I've later learned you don't have to love every person you meet. That would be impossible. Nor can you expect every person to love you. But if you're polite, and generally I am, I get impatient at times. I'm pretty normal. I'm no angel. But if you're polite, then you can get along together. You can accept each other as human beings. And it's the acceptance of each other as equal human beings that was essential in our lives. And so you see, I say my parents would have been wonderful teachers. Again, 10 years old, 1943, I came home from school and I said, Mum, our school book, My Country, says South Africa is a democracy because all grown-ups can vote for their representatives in Parliament and every five years their elections and the party that has the majority in Parliament forms the government. The majority in Parliament forms the government. Yes, darling. And if the government... And if the government loses the majority, it goes out of office peacefully. So we are a democracy. So we are a democracy. And so I go home and I say, but, but it's, not true. it's not true. Not everybody not can everybody vote. Not everybody can vote. Not all grown-up Not all grown-up people, grown people can vote. Only white people can vote. Because only whites. There were some coloured people could vote and a very few Africans in the Cape. But essentially only white people. And some coloured people and some few African people in the Cape. So why does the book tell me that all adults can vote? Because if you say all people, then it also means black people. Or else you're saying that black people aren't people. You know, for a ten-year-old, if you say all people, but black people can't, then it means black people aren't people. Well, 
the book is wrong. But you see, there are people. Ten-year-olds are like that. Yeah. Can I say it's black and white, logically speaking? So my parents said, but the book is wrong. But why is it like that? What do you mean? Well, my, my mother would say... Think about it. And when you've tried to understand, or think you understand, then you can come and ask for more explanation. And she would give me an explanation. I don't remember the exact explanation then. But always beyond what I could understand. So always she led me onwards. So in my book I describe as a six-year-old, this is 1939, seeing a man on crutches. Not a white man. In Cape Town, in the winter, it's raining. His leg is bandaged. He's soaked through. We drive past in our little car that was almost always falling apart, but dry in the car. And the six-year-old little boy, me, says, Oh, poor man. Oh, look, poor man. Out of sympathy. Why do you say he's a poor man? And my mother who never missed an opportunity, says, why do you say he's a poor man? But look at him. He's wet and he's sick and he's and on And I crutches. say, but look at him. He's wet and he's sick and he's on crutches. He's, he's poor. poor. man. He's a poor man. She says, yes, but why is he poor? Yeah, but why and is I he poor? And I say, because he's black. Because he's black. She says, what, what else? What else, Dennis? And from this five, six-year-old... Because... He's she leads me to the point where I say... Working man. And and a working man that is black in South Africa is especially poor? Now, I understood this as a six-year-old. Africa's dying. There's a place in such a mess. And no one gives a heck. It's really frightening. Oh, if you're listening, Abuti, you better run as fast as you can, cause she's dying, and no one gives a damn. Western man. Where he wants, he does what he likes, and he takes what he can. Oh, he's running with the devil, and he's running with the cash, and she's dying, and no. The important point, I suppose, was that I was quite a bright kid, and I, you know, I say it without blowing my own trumpet. And I was curious about all these things. I asked the questions. What was important for me was that my parents were honest and explained to me, and having come from England, from a poor working-class home, were not just living the life of privileged whites. They understood the problem and were part of trying to change it, even then. 
And so I heard people arguing and debating. It was normal conversation in my home. So in that sense, I was privileged. Even though I was isolated from my schoolmates, white kids, of course, in a white school in about eight years. And sometimes it was quite lonely, you know? But I played rugby, and I was one of the lads, and I could kick a ball, and I could uh, defend myself physically as well as emotionally. I always felt we were different. I started school on my sixth birthday, the 11th of April, 1939. You couldn't start school until you were six, and it was the second term. I loved school. I wanted to go to school. And my parents took me to school that first day. I didn't just go with my big brother. And before we went... Bea, you look very smart, darling. Such a big boy. Can we go now, Mum? I don't want to be late. My parents said to me, you must know that we are Jewish and there will be people Dennis, who will attack you. You must know that we're Jewish. There'll be people who will attack you. Don't ever be ashamed. Even though we're not religious in our family. We're also communists and there's a lot of people who hate us for being communists. Dennis, we never want you to ever have to defend us. You just behave like you want to be. And you just do the best you can at school. We don't say you must come first in your class. But if you do badly, they'll say it's because your parents are communists and Jews. We want you to try and do your best. But don't ever argue to defend us, darling. But I loved my parents. And so I defended them. So, so there seems to have been that bond between you and your dad, you and your mom. But you talk of the painful relationship that existed between you and your brother who when you and your mom was in prison he wanted to have nothing to do with you well all i can say is i do understand him in part it's my father's fault in his case he was he is six years older than i am and my father felt constrained by having a child at that point in his life and so my brother felt rejected. He spent his whole life, until my father died, trying to win his father's love. Eventually he broke with Dad uh, to protect himself as a personality. I do understand that. He had a job working for an electronics firm which made radio and electronic equipment, which was used by the military, the police, Air Force, Navy, and private stuff. He told me that they constantly asked him to fill in security clearance forms, and he used to tear them up. But I know that his son, my nephew, studied medicine. You see the privilege of being white. My father had six years in school, I could go to university. My brother could become a manager in a firm. His son could go to medical school, because we were white. The son graduates from medical school, has to do his military training. Medical doctors in the army are always captains. They make him a sergeant. And he asks why, and eventually finds it, because you've got an uncle in prison, that's me. 
I'd had no contact with my brother for 16 years. But they don't forget, you see. So it works through. So I understand my brother. I understand fear. I do understand fear. I understand that people do things out of fear of losing a job, need to bring up children, need to send them to study, and kind of swallow their antipathy to apartheid. My brother was never one who embraced apartheid, but he didn't actually fight it. That's all I can say about it. He protected himself. I wish he'd done more because then I could love him. I don't. It doesn't matter now. It's over anyhow. It tells the world. But you understand what I'm trying to tell you about the way in which this kind of bitter policy of apartheid or oppression, oppression of a group, Israel against Palestinians now, that it splits families. It creates hatred within a family. It's terrible. Because yeah. I've grown up with all of this. At the end of World War II, when the Nazis were defeated, there were the Nuremberg trials. And what they said was, there are orders that are given that must not be followed because they are immoral, and it is your moral duty as a human being to not obey them, no matter what the cost. It's a high ideal. Not many of us achieve that. After all, if every black South African had actively fought apartheid, it would have been over long ago. It's not just whites who collaborated. There were black collaborators. There were Jewish collaborators with the Nazis. Out of survival instinct. It's unacceptable, but it's true. There were black policemen who were torturers in South Africa. And some of them were dealt with. Many of them never. They still have difficulty being accepted back into their communities. They're communities that know who were collaborators with apartheid. These people are still not accepted. It'll go on for generations, and it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. From quite early in your political life, there is this occurrence that keeps coming up over and over and over again. The training of the new recruit. <laughs> yeah. The education of the young cadre. Yeah. And it seems to have been the backbone of 
the movement at that time? Uh, yes and no. You see, I grew up at a time in a household of communists in which the Communist Party internationally was very authoritarian. And somebody could be a hero of the people one day and the next day would be an enemy of the people because they didn't agree with the new policy. I could never understand this. I heard people arguing, I heard people quoting page after page of the theoretical books and Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Stalin, and say, but it doesn't mean anything. It's out of context. It's just words. You need to think. For me, training was necessary. Not to say, in 1917, that's what they did, therefore we must do it now. How do you analyze the situation? And you can only do that by talking about it and analyzing it. And Comrade Nelson Mandela, when we were on trial, one day took me aside and he wagged his finger at me like he used to love to do. And he said, Dennis, when you teach our people about class struggle and social formation, please don't talk about Europe, about slavery and feudalism and merchant capitalism and capitalism. Talk about South Africa so that our people know from their lived experience and oral history what you're talking about. You see, so education, yes, it is necessary. Nelson Mandela was an intellectual and he wanted people to understand. I, I don't claim to be of his caliber, but my wish was for people to understand what they were doing. So when I was training young recruits, it wasn't, this is what you do, and there's no other way. Even an illiterate person can produce leaflets. You get somebody to write it. You can see the letters on the keyboard. You can tap out and make the original copy. This is how you use the machine. Or you can get somebody to do it if you know how. There was uh, one this is what I taught. There was one particular one that lasted six days. Yes. And everything was worked out, including the duties, the food, <laughs> the, and no one is allowed to arrive late as part of the discipline, and yeah. including motor mechanics, because we don't want to be stranded in the middle of the night. In other words, you want to produce a fully rounded cadre. Yeah, bro. absolutely. And this was actually at a training camp at a place called Mumri, about an hour's drive from Cape Town. It is in history the first Mkonto we see is where training camp inside South Africa. Our security was not good enough. We got caught and we had to break it up. And a number were arrested later. Some were put on trial, but they jumped bail. Ended up in Tanzania ended up in Algeria, ended up in the Soviet Union, were trained as soldiers. And Comrade Palo Jordan, a member of the National Executive, when I came out of prison, he said, Dennis, these young men from Cape Town have such a reputation for discipline, for carrying out their duties beyond what everybody else will do. Uh -huh. First in the military, but now they're older politically. And I tell you that that's what I hope to achieve and I'm very proud of my role in that and they respect me for it. 
And you can't run a political movement without discipline and self-discipline. What I wanted from my young comrades, and many of them were much younger than me, was in the absence of somebody giving you orders, how do you think through a problem? How do you win the support of the population? Tell no lies, claim no easy victories, win the support on the basis of the truth of what you're doing. And all this, I suppose, I learnt in my parents' home, but from reading and reading the newspapers and reading stories of partisans, guerrilla fighters against the Nazis. And just to anticipate, if we were fighting the Nazis and their racism and their brutality in Europe... If we're fighting Nazis and their racism and brutality in Europe, and the Japanese militarism in Asia, how can we tolerate racism inside South Africa? Dennis, the moment the 90 days detention without trial comes into effect, you're going to be arrested. Everybody knows you're the one who set up the platforms for others to speak on. Everybody knows you do all that, and everybody knows you're called Mr. Technico. If somebody doesn't break and give you away about Encanto, maybe they'll break you under interrogation. Now we think you better leave Cape Town. Go to Joburg to get permission to leave the country. I'd come to Johannesburg because my comrades in Cape Town said there was the 90-day law coming into effect. And they said, this was comrades Fred Carneson and Brian Bunting, and I worked with Comrade Fred in Umkonto and Comrade Brian in the Communist Party. Uh, and they both said to me, Dennis, the moment this law comes into effect, you're going to be arrested. Everybody knows that you set up the platforms for others to speak on. Everybody knows you do all that. And everybody knows you're called Mr. Technico. If somebody doesn't break and give you away about Mkonto, maybe they'll break you under interrogation. You better leave and go to Joburg to get permission to leave the country. Because we had this rule, you didn't just leave. You got permission from your local structure, but you went to the next higher one for final approval. And so I went to Joburg I was met by Joe Slovo, and I stayed in a small hotel in Hillbrow. It was very posh in those days. It wasn't like it is now. And uh, he said, better I stay, you should stay underground, underground, because... We have this plan, Operation Maibuya. They had this plan, Operation Maibuya. And we need hand grenades and explosives, weapons. Now, you're an engineer. We need you to make them. So stay. So stay. All right, I'll stay. There's a place in Mountain View. I'll need some crockery and pots and pans and things. And there was a place for me to stay in Mountain View, but I needed to equip it with cutlery and crockery and pots and pans to live in. And so I went to the OK Bazaars in Elof Street, and Elof Street in those days was the sort of height of the shopping centre. That was downtown. That was downtown. Yeah. <laughs> that was downtown. <laughs> By this time, I had a little beard and I had funny little glasses. I looked totally different. I was already going bald, but my hair was combed down over my forehead. It was stuck down with some sort of hairdressing, you know. And I came out of OK Bazaars carrying boxes with just my face showing. And suddenly a car whips in from the road, stops at the pavement. Hello, Denny! 
And a man leaned over and he waved to me. He says, hello, Dennis, what are you doing here? <laughs> Actually, he was a man. He was our medical doctor. He'd been in the movement. And I'd borrowed the money for the train fare to get to Joburg from him. <laughs> I mean, he'd driven up with his family, not to see me. He just happened to be in the busiest shopping street in Africa. <laughs> at the moment that I walked out of the store, unbelievable. He never gave me away as far as I know. But this is how easy it is to get caught, you see. And I can tell you, in Cape Town, I mean, I had a full-time job as a civil engineer. I was active legally in Congress of Democrats. I was active in the Communist Party in Mkonto Wessis, where the last two, very hush-hush. You have to meet somebody, you get to the meeting point too early, you go for a drive round, and one day I get picked up by a security cop driving a car. He just sees me and follows me. Lord, I'm being followed. I have to drive past the meeting point. And I have to go past the meeting point, and there's Look Smart and Goodland. Oh no, Look Smart! And I drive past him, but Hello, he runs Dennis. out because he recognizes my Dennis. car. They'll see you! Damn! The police go back and find him and follow him home, he's riding his scooter, and try to force him off the road, try to kill him. But they caught me by chance, and they caught me with look smart by chance. And because they've got a big machine, you see, and, and then now you would use a spreadsheet on a computer. All the names that you meet at a meeting and all the other, you know, who meets with who? You can form patterns. You find Dennis doing something, you can guess who's working with them. You know who to watch. Why do I say this? Because when they interrogated me, eventually, they had sheets of paper. My files were sort of, I would say, four fat folders, each about uh, six centimeters high. You know, every place you've been, who you've been with, what you've been doing, Mr. Goldberg, Filled with records of every place they knew where I'd been, who I'd been with, what I was doing, what I'd said sometimes. We know everything. And these charts showing who was connected to who. We even know what you've said. You see these charts? We know who is connected to who. We know it. We all. know it. We know it. We How did you respond? The blankness of your eyes. How did you respond? Allow me to speak as someone who completely did not understand what the plan for Operation Maibuye was. And it's like, really, really. And let me ask it this way. Suppose you had not been arrested. What would have happened in this country? We would be dead. 
because they would have caught us eventually. And the plan itself was a very elaborate one, which was a good starting point for thinking. Operation Maibuya, Operation Return, Maibuya mm -hmm. e Africa, of mm -hmm. course. It was a plan to put 7,000 young men or men and, I suppose, women in the field, arm them, train them to be an army to rise up against apartheid. Uh, I don't know how we would have fed them. I don't know how we would have equipped them. I don't know how we would have trained them. There was also part of the plan was that we would train people outside the country, in Algeria, in other African countries, but also in the Soviet Union and other East Bloc countries at that time, the communist countries, because they wanted to give us support. And they would be brought back in to help train more people. It was a plan to move from armed propaganda, as we called it, where we would blow up a pass office, where we would blow up a post office, which was partly pass office, apartheid institutions, where we would move from that to taking on police stations. You see, if you blow up a power line, you're not killing anybody, but you're disrupting the economy. The police eventually have to come along to try to find out what's happened. Eventually, you leave a group to deal with the police, an armed group. So next time it happens, the police have to come in a bigger force. But you disappear. You're not there. It means that the security forces of the state have to grow and grow and grow. And the principle that you learn from the books, because none of us were soldiers, is that where the enemy is strong, you retreat. Where the enemy is weak, you attack. That's the essence of guerrilla warfare. Follow? So, Operation Maibuya would have been, in the end, I'm filling in what I understand, would have been groups of armed men equipped with explosives and hand grenades and firearms in all parts of the country, in different provinces, able to act in coordination to stretch the security forces of the state. It was imaginative. I'm not sure that we could have pulled it off. But it was a plan, you see, and I was on the logistics committee of the high command because I'm an engineer. Dennis Stay manufacture the weapons for us. Uh, and, of course, I said, I want to leave, but if I can be useful, I will stay. I'm leaving because I can't work in Cape Town anymore politically. I'll go to prison straight away. That's pointless. So they asked me to stay. Joe Slover brought the message. And so I stayed, and I started investigating how to make these weapons. Where would I get the equipment? We even bought a small farm in Krugersdorp, Trevallon Agricultural Holdings. One day I want to pluck there, because <laughs> this is where Comrade Walter Sisulu and Um Govan and Becky and Raymond and Schlaber and Wilton and Kwai and I lived underground till we were caught, you see. And we were going to make the factory there. We would have made a chicken farm to cover it. <laughs> that was mm -hmm. the plan. 
Of course, I denied all this in court. Uh, I didn't feel that I had to be so honest that I would <laughs> tell the judge everything. If they didn't know, why should I tell them? People criticize Operation Maibuya now for its romantic unreality. What sort of a world were we living in? But when I raised my objections to the plan, uh, my comrade said, we, we have, have to, to start, start somewhere. somewhere. And we'll start by making our weapons, building up our units, and we'll continue with the sabotage acts. We'll win the support of our people. And if we can pull off maybe yeah, we will. If we can't, we will still continue. Because it's a political struggle. It wouldn't be a military defeat. It would be a political defeat. Viva. When the apartheid government is ready to negotiate, we will negotiate. Viva. We want a political solution. And that was what the Mkonto Manifesto said, December 16th, 1961. The issue is power. We will show, and it was signed by the Command-in-Chief, who was Nelson Mandela, we will show that the people can generate the power to seize power. But the issue is one of a political solution, and when the apartheid government is ready to negotiate, we will negotiate. In other words, we're not saying kill everybody. That's in keeping with the Freedom Charter. South, South Africa belongs to all who live in it. Live in it. It's absolutely consistent. It took 30 years. You see, so, but you start somewhere. And I was prepared to go along and make the weapons and show people all over the country how to make them. In fact, to try and save us a lot of trouble, I went to a factory to see if they would make the hand grenade casings for us. <laughs> I disguised them in the drawing I gave this yeah. factory owner and manager, made out of cast iron. And then I said, We need 210,000 of these. Uh, yeah. And I need them in six weeks. You can do that, right? And he looked at my little drawing and the weight of cast iron, which looked nothing like a hand grenade. And he said, you know, we made 15,000 hand grenades a year during the war. <laughs> and I nearly fell off my chair because he guessed. It didn't take him to the police. But when the police found my notebook, he must have told them the story, you see. So they knew what I was doing. <laughs> 210,000. Well, if you distribute them between the four provinces of South Africa, Johannesburg, Cape Town, Durban, Port Elizabeth, uh, Peter Maritzburg, you know, different city. I mean, it's not a lot, you know. <laughs> that was cheeky. <laughs> so this is what was being planned at Lily's Leaf? Yes. Yes. That was our plan. Our comrade Casrada points out that Lily's Leaf was actually bought by the Communist Party as its underground headquarters. And then Nelson Mandela was on the run and need to hide, and so it was agreed he could be there as David Motsamai, farm worker, farm boy, serving tea to the other workers. <laughs> this elegant man serving tea in a blue overalls. <laughs> I wasn't there at the time, I came afterwards. And, but Kasrada tells you, see, and then um, Umgov turned up and needed a place to stay, Umgov and Becky, and then Raymond and Schlaber, then Wilton and Kwai, and other people were being arrested. Nelson Mandela had left there by then and was now in prison for having left the country illegally, having called the strike in 1961.
against the apartheid republic constitution and for having left the country illegally and come back. He got five years in prison. And so here you had people who were members of the Central Committee of the Communist Party, were members of the Secretariat of the ANC, were leaders of Encontro Wessiswe, and they became the leaders of the movement. And Casada rightly points out that the movement took a turn that the answer would be a military one, whereas the answer had to be a political one supported by the military. In political argument and revolution, you do not leave policy to military people because all they know is violence. In my opinion and those of other comrades, you do not leave political policy to generals in the army because all soldiers know is to kill and use force. Whereas sometimes you reach the point where the other side has to negotiate. That was the strength of Comrade O.R. Tambo. That was strength. We got to the point predicted in our manifesto of Encontro Wessiswe, where the armed struggle and the world, what was happening in Southern Africa and sanctions and boycott and isolation had reached the point where the apartheid state could no longer defeat the liberation movement, including the armed struggle. They were fighting in Angola, in Namibia, in Mozambique, were being steadily pushed back and were financially bankrupt. A war's not over when every soldier is dead. A war's over when the state cannot organize itself and finance itself anymore, where there is the need for another answer. And so negotiations took place. But that's a political solution, as it turned out in history. Very important to understand that. And it's very important to understand it because it carries through the promise of the Freedom Charter, South Africa belongs to all who live in it, black and white together, which goes back to the African claims of 1943, which is the first international document on human rights, on equal human rights. Five years before, as President Zuma points out, five years before the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, our people come out of an African humanist tradition. And what hurts me today, because all of this is translated through the Freedom Charter, through the leadership of the Congress Alliance and the Communist Party, into our Constitution by negotiation. And privileged elements can't understand the generosity that's been shown to them. They've retained their rights, their property, their education, all the privileges that come from hundreds of years of racial segregation. And every time there's a move to radically transform our country to real equality, they object. They can't see that they're spurning a remarkably generous response. And so it triggers in young people, in the Youth League, for example, 
who are frustrated by the slow, well, they think slow, historically actually fast change. But they've come through our transformation. They've gone to school or they've gone to university. They can't get jobs. And they're saying, well, what's happened here? And those who have power, the old traditional power of economics, and the new ones who've been co-opted, and some have been bought, I have to say that about some of my comrades. Unfortunately. Unfortunately, we're not angels, we're just ordinary people. And they won't give up their privilege. And it makes me very, very sad because there's this potential for humanism which is turned into so often when I read the letters to the newspapers about an incident, a piece of artwork, a piece of legislation, about e-tolling, about whatever, I see a clear, judging by names, not a proof of course, a clear ethnic divide in response to our social, economic and political situation. And for me, this is a tragedy. And you know, because I'm of Jewish origin, although not religious, and there's anti-Semitism in South Africa, in the world, with the name Goldberg, people say you're a Jew. And as long as they will call me a Jew, then I cannot deny being a Jew, because I have to combat this prejudice. Yeah? So I understand that if somebody makes a hostile remark, they say, but I didn't mean anything. I know they did, you see. So when an artist or a cartoonist or a playwright or a poet or a journalist or a premier of a province that I won't name makes a remark that is clearly insensitive. It is the response of the people who feel it is insensitive that matters, not just the motive of the person. An artist paints an obscene painting. He knows it's provocative. He cannot claim innocence. He did it deliberately. He did it deliberately to shock. If he meant to shock, he knew it was hurtful. Otherwise, it wouldn't shock. But what has that got to do with the politics of our country? For me, the most painful thing was the emblem of the ANC with the word sold across it. Do you understand? Yeah. I, yeah. So it's a, I wish Comrade Zuma had said when he looked at the painting, it diminishes me, because there's a nice word play there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, anyway, I want to rewind. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. No, 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 no need to apologize because we need to hear these things. We need to get them whilst you're here. Up to today, do you want to say nobody knows how you got arrested? Well, some people must know, but officially we don't know. I'm surprised about that because the archives must lie in police archives and police notes books uh, somewhere. Lilliesley Farm, under the directorship of Nicholas Wolpe, the museum now, has done a lot of research. There's a lot of speculation. There was talk of a British secret agent 
who lived in the caravan park and used to keep observation there. There's a story from the police sources held it shown up in a German film made shortly after the Ravonia trial of black workers on neighboring farms saying their funny things going on, saying to their bosses, sorry, boss, as was yeah. in those days. That's one suggestion, but you don't know if that's propaganda to show that black people were not united in the struggle against apartheid. But it's possible. I personally believe, with Kathrada, that we were careless about our security. Too many people were coming there. Now, people living underground at Lily's Leaf cannot function without meeting with people who are out in the public arena. They were coming there. Bram Fischer would come. Joe Slovo would come. They all said they were very, very careful not to be followed. But you see, just as I got caught once with Luxmart, just driving, driving in a circle to waste time, I got picked up because the police said, Dennis is being suspicious here. So imagine this well-known advocate, Bram Fischer, driving out from his chambers in his chambers, I think it was, in the heart of Johannesburg, out to Ravonia, and he dodges round and eventually comes there, and a security policeman happens to see him and reports where he saw him. And then sometime later, somebody finds him nearby, and they begin to track where he goes, or Joe Slovo, or somebody, but we don't know, because I believe secret agencies keep their secrets because who gave them away? Maybe I was followed. I don't think so, because they didn't know I was there. They were surprised to find me. They even brought a cop from Cape Town to identify me. Yeah, well, I was a little bonus compared with finding <laughs> not just Walter Sisulu, but all the others. I believe that the size of the police machine... It's possible that the dentist betrayed us, the dentist who came to make an artificial plate for Walter Sisulu because he had a gap between his front teeth. It was a very significant feature of his appearance. So a dentist came. But why should he have betrayed us? He was a brother-in-law of Arthur Goldreich who lived at that farm with his wife and children. I don't know why he would want to do it. And when I met him years later, he and his wife, the sister of Arthur Goldreich, there was no sense of discomfort. And I just don't believe it. Now, it's possible that Arthur Goldreich was followed and his phone was tapped and he made the arrangements with his brother-in-law, the dentist, on the telephone. Arthur's